Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. It is always good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, we think that the decision to show up and worship Jesus is always a wise one. So well done, you. Great job. Way to get Sunday, way to get Halloween started well. And, you know, when you think about it, we really are all here for the same reason, ultimately, even if there are some different surface reasons. Some of y'all are here because somebody that you really care about is really into Jesus and they ask you to come. Thanks for coming with them. <laughs> way to be a good friend or child or spouse or whatever it may be. Uh, others of you are here because while you're not, you're not at a place where you want to just give Jesus authority over your life, you are interested. You know, there's kind of enough there that you're kind of wondering what all the fuss is about. And so you're seeking it out for yourself. And again, awesome, a really good and wise path to pursue. And of course, most of us in the room are here because we're followers of this Jesus. We, um, we're Christians. We've received his grace as our savior. We've committed to uh, his way as our Lord. And, and that's, that's what we're doing. And so, uh, you know, the kind of the under the surface reasons are different, but you can kind of see the thread running through them. They're ultimately the same. Jesus is the reason you and I are here, which kind of makes sense, but it's also weird. Like on the one hand, it makes sense. This is a church. Uh, if you didn't know that, somebody played a really weird trick on you. <laughs> Sorry about that, but you might want to know, but you guys know where we are. I mean, even in this, in the name Christ's church. Uh, so it makes sense, but it's also weird because well, it's like a conversation between two sisters who became famous eight years ago. Uh, the older sister was kind of wiser. She's a grizzled veteran. She'd been hardened by the sufferings of life, and she was nothing if not cautious. The younger sister was a little bit naive, kind of sheltered, super sweet, but generally pretty clueless about life and love and everything else. And well, you remember what happened. Anna walks into Elsa's presence with Prince Hans <laughs> at her side. Announcing their intent to marry. And maybe you remember Elsa's wisdom. She put it in nice compact form. Anna, you can't marry a man you just met. Turned out to be good advice in that particular case. And if I could just channel my inner Elsa for a moment, which I promise is not a regular occurrence in my life. Can I just say, it's weird to follow someone you've never seen. I guess odd. We might even say dangerous to trust your life and eternity to a person you've never interacted with face-to-face. -face. You've never yourself met. Now, if you're like in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus and you think we're weird, I'm just gonna raise the white flag on this one. We are a little weird in some ways, so fully acknowledged, okay? And if you are an insider to faith, if you're a person who believes in Jesus, can I ask you a question? Why do you follow someone you've never seen? Why do you trust your entire existence to a person that you've never personally met or interacted with face to face? Now, I know what your answer might be. I know what mine would be if somebody asked me this question. Like I have met Jesus. I mean, in a kind of a figurative way, I've experienced Jesus, which is great. That, I'm not mocking that in the least. Like I said, that's how I'd probably answer the question, but it just raises another one. Like, how do I know the Jesus I've met is the real Jesus? How do you know the Jesus that you've experienced is actually Jesus? I don't have to tell you guys that people invent Jesuses of their own making all the time. It's like a really easy thing to do. It's like Jesus made a Play-Doh, you know, people just mess with him. And how do we know we're not doing that? 
And if your answer to that question is, well, the Bible, again, good answer. That'd be my answer, right? Like that's what we've been given is this guide to understand who Jesus really is. And, and that's true of the whole Bible. It's all about him. And that's also especially true of one part of the Bible. These, these books we call gospels, the life stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're there to help us understand the truth about Jesus. And we do have four. And actually in keeping with the theme, that's kind of weird. You ever think about that? Like, why do we have four of these things? Imagine if you knew basically nothing about Christianity. You understood that there was this Jesus Christ person, but you didn't know anything about him or this faith, this religion, and you're kind of interested. Like, why are all these people talking about this? And so you kind of try to seek it out a little bit, and somebody hands you a Bible. And they don't give you a whole lot of guidance. They just say, you probably ought to start with the New Testament. You're like, okay, I shall. And you, table of contents, find the New Testament. You turn the page, and it says, the gospel according to Matthew. Oh, great, okay, interesting. You start reading. You're kind of excited because it cuts right to the chase. You realize that Matthew is kind of the official documentarian of this Jesus person, and so you read through the story, and it's interesting. It says a lot of wild stuff, does some interesting things. You're surprised when the guy dies. You're even more surprised when he comes back to life, and you finish the gospel of Matthew, and honestly, you're pretty satisfied. Ah, story's pretty good, and I'm kind of glad to know what it's all about. I think I'll keep going. What's next? Turn the page, and you see the words, the gospel according to Mark. You're like, wait, what? Hold on. Hold on. Like, there's two versions? Uh, like, What's going on? But you read and you realize actually pretty quickly that Mark is a lot shorter than Matthew, but it tells the same basic story. You're kind of wondering why there's two official, you know, documents of the founding of this person and his faith, but you're kind of thinking it through and you turn on the page and you about fall out of your chair when you see the words, the gospel according to Luke. You're wondering what the heck's going on. Like, can these people not agree on their man? Is this like represent different divisions or sects of this religion? And you're kind of perplexed, but you read on and you read through Luke and you do see it's a little bit different. It kind of lays out the story differently and it has some different themes that it draws attention to. But you can also tell it's the same story. I mean, a lot of the same kinds of things happen, especially when you get to the end. These align pretty well. So you turn another page, and by this time, you're not even surprised to find the words, the gospel according to John. You figure this whole book is just made up of one story about Jesus after another. You know, the gospel according to Frank and Terrence and Margaret just keeps on going. (laughs) You read through John, and again, you realize this one's really different, actually, than the other three. But even in spite of its differences, it tells the same basic story of Jesus. It's kind of left there wondering. And I wonder if you wonder, like, why do we have four or three kind of plus one that's different? And what should we do with these four gospel stories about Jesus' life? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to talk today about all of them in one day. 89 chapters, 3,779 verses. No, I did not count. Yes, I looked on Google. (laughs) One shot. We've actually done this before. I don't know if you remember, a number of you were here when we worked through all four gospels in chronological order. It took us two and a half years. Clock says 23 and a half minutes, so we'll see. How this, it's really more like a guideline anyway, so we're good. We actually are going to be fine. It's going to be fun. And here's, here's the mental image for you. Here's kind of the image I have when I think about the message this morning. It's kind of like skipping rocks across a river. You ever done this before? Most of us have. And they just bounce across the top. You get it. You kind of see the top, don't really dig down deep. Now, on the one hand, you can't really fully enjoy the water unless you jump in and swim. And we do that often as a church. Matter of fact, heads up, it's going to be fun. In the spring, we're going, to, we're going to jump in and swim. We're going to walk through the gospel of Matthew in some detail. So we're going to dig deep and see these stories. But um, we're not doing that today. Today we're skipping rocks. Now, on the other hand, though, one thing you can't see when you're in the water is the bigger picture. And so that's really the task for today is we're going to try to get the bigger picture. We're going to try to get the wide scope to figure out what the gospels tell us Jesus is all about. And... Um, What we all know, what's kind of obvious, is that the Gospels tell the story of Jesus. 
But what's less obvious is that all four gospels tell the Jesus story as an Exodus story. Let me back up for a second. We're in a series around here called Liberated. And we've been in this series now for a number of weeks. And we're talking about the Exodus, but we're not just looking at one event. We're asking how the Exodus kind of can be heard echoing throughout all the different parts of the Bible. And today we're doing that with the Gospels. If you think, well, what is the Exodus again? The Exodus was the most important moment in Israel's history. It's the moment when they experienced independence. It's the moment when they were established as a people. It would be like if you took the, um, if you took the Boston Tea Party, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the entire Revolutionary War, and the Treaty of Paris, and you compress them all into one week. That, for the Israelites, uh, is the Exodus. That's the moment for them. So quick refresher on how all this went down. Israel, before the story, had been living in their own land, the land that would come to be known as the land of Israel, but there was a famine, and so they actually went down to Egypt for protection. They went down to Egypt to get a little bit of help. And things went fine for a while, but they pretty quickly took a turn. And by the time you get to the story of Exodus, the people of Israel have been enslaved for centuries in Egypt under the thumb of a king named Pharaoh. So God looks down and he hears their cry and sees their pain and he sends this liberator named Moses to go and, and help set his people free. And this would happen by him going to this King Pharaoh person and demanding the immediate release of the Israelites. Well, eventually he did this and it kind of led to this back and forth uh, tug of war of sorts where Moses would you know, clarify God's demand and Pharaoh would refuse and then God would send a plague of judgment down on Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh would relent, but then he would change his mind, just rinse and repeat over and over and over. And the 10th of these plagues was, I mean, it was a doozy. It was pretty serious stuff. So God essentially in judgment upon Egypt's gods and Pharaoh and all who live under their care released this destroyer who one day was going to put to death all of the firstborn sons of people and animals. Again, pretty serious thing. But God actually himself provides a way out. He provides a path of protection from his own judgment. Every family who sacrifices a lamb and puts the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the entryway of their home, on the doorpost of their home, would actually be saved. God's judgment will literally pass over all homes covered by the blood. That's why we call this the Passover. So this happens, and finally Pharaoh realizes he's lost, and he lets the people go. And so they bolt out of Egypt, and pretty much as soon as they're gone, Pharaoh re regrets that he's let them go. He wants his labor force, and so he chases them into the wilderness. And the Israelites are making their way through, and they come upon this barrier. It's a body of water. It's called the Red Sea, and they're in trouble because behind them is Pharaoh. But no worries, because God actually parts the waters of the sea. The people of Israel walk through on dry ground onto the other side. Pharaoh and his armies follow on this dry ground. God releases the water and Pharaoh and his army is gone. Israel now finds themselves on the other side in the wilderness. And God guides them through the wilderness for 40 years. And he gives them laws and customs so that they can learn how to worship him properly until they get this point to this point where they're ready to enter in. And then God sends them through another river, the Jordan, into the land that God promised their forefather, Abraham. That's the story of the Exodus. And this story really provides a, an important key backdrop for the story of Jesus. In an earlier version of this sermon, I was going to walk through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and show how each of them are Exodus stories remixed. And that version of the sermon was approximately 76 minutes long. So I decided I would cut it down a little bit. You guys got some candy to hand out. And so we'll keep it chill. We'll just look at a couple of the Gospels and only at the way they begin. So the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel. He begins with this really magnificent poem. 
That's kind of a prologue for the themes in his gospel. You heard it read to you earlier. I just want to read a small portion of it the way it ends. And I want you to notice how he presents Jesus as kind of a new Moses. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 16. Out of his fullness, that'd be God's fullness. Out of God's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So, real subtle, but did you notice that? It's not that like Moses and Jesus are contrasted, it's that Moses brings the grace of the law, and then Jesus brings the greater grace of full salvation. So, Jesus is being presented here as a new and greater Moses, the liberator of God's people. If you read on in John into the next scene, there's this other John, not the one who wrote it, but a guy who was John the Baptist, confusing, I know, and he was kind of leading a renewal movement to prepare God's people for when God would send the promised king, the Messiah. He made it clear always, not about me, it's about the guy coming next. And later on in John chapter one, John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time. Look at how that goes. The next day, this is verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did you catch that? That's a Passover theme. That's who Jesus is, not just a new and greater Moses. He's a new and greater lamb as well. So that's John, and we could honestly keep tracing out those kinds of things all day long. Let's think about Matthew for a moment, the first gospel. I don't want to kind of drill down into the details of Matthew's beginning, but I want you to see the bigger picture. Now, some of you may be kind of familiar with the opening scenes of Matthew's gospel because it's like Christmas story type stuff. It's the birth narratives of Jesus. And what's interesting is if you watch Jesus's movement in the first few chapters of Matthew, it looks very familiar. So Jesus is born in the land of Israel, in Bethlehem, and then because of some threats to his safety, he actually went to Egypt for a while, stayed in Egypt for a while, but then was brought back into the land of Israel. When it was time for him to go public, he actually went into the water of the Jordan River, back out into the promised land, where he was led into a, the wilderness for a period of 40 days where he was tested in preparation for the ministry that God had sent him to accomplish. You see the parallels? The narrative of Jesus' life maps really well onto the narrative of Israel's story. Why? Because the Jesus story is an Exodus story. So here's our question for today. And this is how we're going to filter all of the content in the Gospels in one direction. The question we're going to ask is, what can the Exodus help us see about Jesus? That's the question. And what I'd like to suggest is, the Exodus can be really helpful for understanding the problem that we face and the solution that is offered to us. That's kind of our framework. What's wrong with the world? That's the question. It really is important to diagnose the core issue because if we don't know what's wrong, then we don't know how to solve it. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to do when it comes to the heart deep issue of our world. A lot of times people are like, well, it's, you know, the problem with the world is people. True enough, but like what's wrong with people? It just begs the question. And there are a number of different answers to the question. And the different analyses of the solution or of the problem all have their own solution. Some people say the primary problem is crime and so the solution is punishment. Others, the primary, the primary problem is ignorance, and so the solution is education. The primary problem is social inequality, and so the solution is economic. The primary problem is an imbalance of power, and so the solution is politics and, and war. Others would say, no, the problem is mental health, and so the solution is therapy. And I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to be sarcastic or negative at all. All of these things have their place. All of them are part of the equation of what's going on. But it doesn't seem to me that any of them dig deep enough. Tylenol is great for a headache, but it's not super helpful in surgery. And we want to do surgery. We want to dig down deep. We want to keep tracing it to the root cause. 
It reminds me of the, uh, the management principle called the five whys. Some of y'all may be familiar with this. It was first made up, or it's kind of the idea was, was, um, was taught by Sakichi Toyota, who was a Japanese entrepreneur, started a number of companies in his day. And it was actually his, I believe his son, who founded and, lead, and led for a while the car company Toyota. And the five wise principle was essentially, if you keep asking the question why, when you have a problem, you can get closer and closer to the root cause. Actually still used at Toyota to this day. So picture yourself in this sort of car, you know, manufacturing factory, and there's a puddle of oil on the manufacturing floor. What do you do? What will you clean up the oil? And then you ask, why? Well, because the machine is leaking oil. Okay, well, you fix the machine, and you ask, why? Well, because the gasket has deteriorated. Okay, so you replace the gasket, and you ask, why? Well, because we bought gaskets made of inferior material. All right, so you change our gasket spec, gasket specs, and then ask, why? Well, because we got a really good deal on those gaskets. Okay, so you change your purchasing policies and ask why. Well, because the purchasing agent is evaluated based on short-term savings, not long-term productivity. And that is our problem. So you change the evaluation policy and all of a sudden you have less oil spills on the manufacturing floor. Now today we're not going to go through a long process of why. We're actually going to allow the exodus to help us just get right to it. When you look at the exodus, what is the problem according to the exodus? Well, it's not just one thing. There's a couple of different things going on, but it's kind of clear what these things are. On the one hand, there's an idolatry problem. People are blind to the truth about God, and so they're worshiping other things. This is true of the Egyptians for sure, and there's even a sense in which the Israelites seem to have kind of lost sight of who God is and of what his promises are for them. So we have a problem of idolatry. We also, though, have this problem of bondage. These people are stuck. Like, that's the issue. They need to be delivered from slavery because they can't currently worship God as they were made given the situation that they're in. And to make matters even worse, we have a little bit of a problem of guilt and judgment, certainly on Egypt, but also perhaps, I don't know, maybe some of the Israelites had participated in some of this idolatry and sin. And the plagues are all about God's judgment coming down and taking care of this situation where these persons have rejected the truth about God and so descended into this chaos. That's the problem. And according to the Exodus, God is the solution. He reveals his great power, showing that he's the only one worthy of worship. He liberates the people from, from slavery to freedom. And he actually offers this way to be forgiven, this way to, to, to be rescued from his own judgment, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. So that's the Exodus, but we're not Israelites in Egypt in slavery. What about us? Some of y'all have already started to make some of the connections, and I'd like to continue that process. Can't you see our problems all over the Exodus? The story's kind of our story. Now, I know it's kind of weird, but I'm going to dwell a little bit longer today in the problem than in the solution. And hopefully I'll be able to articulate why as we proceed. When you think about our problem today, think about without Jesus, where do we find ourselves? Without Jesus, we are blind to the truth about God and therefore we'll worship anything. Did you know that the... Um, well, you know, it's like we, we, we often read the story and we, we typically read ourselves into it as Israelites, right? Like we're in bondage and we need to be freed. And that's fine. That's a good way to read the story. We are their spiritual descendants. They are our ancestors. But we're not only Israelites. We're Egyptians too. You know, the Egyptians had dozens of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Nobody even has like a complete list because it's kind of hard to count. Why? because they had dozens and dozens of needs. We need the sun to come up to keep us warm and take care of our crops, keep us alive, so we'll worship the God of the sun. We're gonna die eventually, so we need to worship a God, goddess of the underworld. 
We need the Nile to continue keeping us safe and producing life, so we'll worship the Nile. We need to have more babies and more crops, and so we'll worship the fertility gods and goddesses that help us get what we need. That's the reason. Now, we today have just as many gods and goddesses in our world, even if we don't call them that. But since I'm talking mostly to church people, I don't know that it's real beneficial for me to rail on what's going on out there. Instead, let's take a look at a conversation Jesus had with some people like us in here. It's in John chapter 8, and we're going to pick it up in verse 42, kind of the middle of the conversation, but I think you'll get the gist of what Jesus is saying. These people are not super fond of him. He says, if God were your father, you'd love me, for I come here from God. I've not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not believe, you do not belong to God. And as I said, maybe the most important thing to remember when we read these harsh words of Jesus is that Jesus is talking to people like the ones in here. He's talking to spiritual people. He's talking to people who consider themselves godly. He's talking to the Jewish equivalent of church people. In here where it's warm and cozy and religious, we're super creative with our idolatry. We know better than to just worship some other god or some other goddess. And so instead, we just kind of update God a little bit to make him fit the 21st century, you know? We just kind of smooth off some of the rough edges so that he's a little bit easier for me to live with. We fit him to our needs. Somebody once said, God created us in his image and then we returned the favor. And I think that's too often true. We call it God, but it looks an awful lot like us. Is your God made happy by the same things that make you happy? Or angry at the same things that make you angry? Does your God love who you love and hate who you hate? Does your God prioritize the advancement of your career or the padding of your accounts or the expansion of your portfolio or your overall comfort or the sense of momentary happiness that you seek? How does your God feel about masks or Fauci or CRT? Has your God recently changed his millennia-old opinion about gender and sexuality to match what your insides are telling you must be good and true? Or on the other hand, is your God think it's like super okay to be mean and hateful to people who don't follow your rules, even if they're the right ones? Is your God crafted in the image of an elephant or a donkey? Or maybe it's an eagle or a tiger or a bulldog or a cardinal. (laughs) Does your God care more about your child's athletic accomplishments or academic achievements than their spiritual well-growth, well-being? I'm not trying to be offensive, I, I promise. But I do think that a conversation about idolatry should make us at least a little bit uncomfortable. Because without Jesus, we find it very hard because we're blind to see the truth about a God worthy of our worship. But to make matters worth, we're stuck. Jesus said in that same interaction with these, uh, these people early on in the conversation, he replies to one of their questions, says, very truly I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Whew. Okay, Jesus, uh, we see you and apparently you see us. 
Some of y'all know what I do for a living. I'm a, I'm a college professor. I, I try to teach young people. I try to train up young men and women specifically for lives of service to God's kingdom. And a lot of my job is mentoring young men and helping them become men. And it won't surprise any of you to know that one of the frequent conversations I have goes something like this. A young man comes into my office. I say, what's on your mind? And he says to me in his own words, I have a problem. I have an addiction to pornography. If only it were a problem for young men. We know it's not. It's women as well, and certainly not only the young. They're stuck. I don't want to do the things I do, but I don't know how to stop. Now, maybe that's not your thing, but I don't want to do the things I do, but I don't know how to stop. You recognize that sentiment. Perhaps for some of us, some of us it is that you're bound to a substance of some kind. Maybe it's a substance that is inherently dangerous, Or maybe it's a substance that's fine. You just have a hard time controlling it. I think still others are stuck in a habit. Maybe it's something that you do. Maybe it is a pornography thing. Or maybe it's a lying thing. You just don't tell the truth. You don't even know why. It's just hard to tell the truth. Or maybe you gossip. Like on a regular basis, you just find words coming out of your mouth that lower other people and elevate you. Maybe maybe it's just scrolling. You know, just wasting too much time getting nothing done. It's not edifying for your mind or for others. Perhaps it's the experience of getting likes on your accounts or or productivity or whatever it might be. Still others, I think it's not so much like a thing that you do. It's more you're just stuck in an ungodly routine. You don't even know how you got there. Maybe it's like there's not enough rest or maybe there's too much rest. Whatever it is, I don't want to keep talking through the specifics. The Spirit can apply to your heart what you need to hear. But y'all know what I'm talking about. Like without Jesus, we're stuck as individuals, as families, as communities, as cities, as countries, as a world. And to top it off, we're guilty. I don't need to go hard here. You know what you've done. I do. I mean, I don't know what you've done, but I know what I've done. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? I've done and thought things that I don't really want you to know about. You've desired and pursued things that if made public, you would be absolutely mortified. And I recognize that at times we find ourselves at the mercy of others. At times we find ourselves hindered by tyrannical people and oppressed by unjust systems. And I want to give those things their proper place. But we also recognize that we all make our own decisions and we all sometimes don't make the right one. And it doesn't do any good to compare yourself to somebody who makes a worse one or more of the wrong ones. Well, you may be infected to a different degree, but it's the same disease. If you don't think this applies to you, I don't really know what I can say right now to help. So Holy Spirit, come in and do the work. But if you know, you know. I think it's probably good for us to move from the problem to the solution. And we may not dig as deep in the solution today because remember, we're skipping rocks. Also, there's some value to spending some time in the problem. If somebody comes up and offers you a solution to a problem you don't think you have, who cares? Right, like if you come up to me like, I found this really great migraine medicine. Hey, good for you. I mean, I don't get migraine, so give it to somebody else. If I come up to you talking about Jesus is the solution to our most fundamental problem and I don't think I need it, who cares? Go give it to somebody else. But if I am in the dark, bound in change, guilty as charged, then I wanna know why you think Jesus is the solution. Because the gospels do say in no uncertain terms that while the problem is worse than we could possibly imagine, the solution is likewise greater than we'd think to dream. And here it is, summarized as best I can. The message of the Gospels when read through the lens of the Exodus is that Jesus reveals God's power by rescuing and restoring God's people. That's the truth. Let's break it down, bit by bit. Jesus reveals God's power. We'll be brief. Jesus reveals God's power, his power. Sometimes this is real clear. Like Jesus just says it, makes it easy for us, which honestly, I'm like, man, that's nice when you do that for us, Jesus. (laughs) 
Sometimes it's just said clearly, like whenever he was having a conversation in John chapter 14 with Philip, one of his followers and friends, Philip says, because Jesus is talking about leaving, he says, Lord, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Catch that. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. Sometimes he says this real clearly. Most of the time in the Gospels, we actually see it in action. Like in some of the miracle stories. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me share with you one of my favorites that doesn't necessarily get a whole lot of press. It's in Matthew chapter 8. Just a couple of verses. Let's read it. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. That's the miracle. Here's the summary. When the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is just like one of about 40 miracle stories that are narrated in the Gospels. And a lot of them are more impressive on the surface than this one. Jesus is calming storms and helping paralytics walk and bringing people who are like dead back to life. And, and when you see these things, remember, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God, God's power, God's kingdom. And in these things, Jesus shows us that the God who truly is, is the only one who is deserving of our total confidence and trust. I do not know what you're tempted to worship or tempted to devote yourself to or serve instead of God, but it can't do the things Jesus can do. His power is unmatched. It is stronger. It is more effective and it is purposeful. I like this miracle story in part because it's sort of almost down to earth if a miracle story can be down to earth, but also because the closer you look, the more you see. There's so much in there that's easy to miss, so much. God's power is revealed in action through Jesus, and God's power is doing something, restoring people back to their proper place of worship, kind of like the Exodus, setting them free so that they might learn to become who he had created them to be. Come back to our story, Matthew chapter eight, second thing we see, Jesus restores us for worship. So easy to miss this. All you gotta do though is look close. Peter's mother-in-law, who's in bed with a fever, was not made to lie in bed with a fever, but to care for whomever walked through her front door. And that's what she does as soon as she's healed. You might've missed it in verse 15. After she's healed, Jesus touches her, fever leaves her. It says that she began to wait on him. That word wait on, it's like a, like a table serving term. It's literally the word to serve him, sometimes translated minister to. It's one of the most common words in the Bible for serving one another. It's a word for worship. Not like singing worship, but like devoting yourself to what God's called you to do. This was her task, this was her joy, this was her calling, and Jesus restores it. He moves her from bondage to this illness so that she can take up her place of service and continue the mission forward. Mark said probably half a dozen times in the last month that we're not just set free to be free, we're set free to worship so that we might take up our place and move the mission forward. So if your place is to welcome people into your home and make sure that they are well fed, Jesus is restoring you for that. And if your place is to build these homes so that people can do this, wire them well because Jesus is restoring you for that. If your place is to clean or to teach or to raise kids or to repair things, be it automobiles or human beings, like whatever your place is, lean into it because Jesus restores you for that. And we're missing one key piece of the puzzle and one key piece of this story. Check the last verse again, verse 17. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Why is that there? Like that's not what Jesus is doing here. He didn't bear anything. 
He didn't take upon himself anything that, he didn't, he didn't have a fever at the end of this story. Like what's going on? This is a verse from the prophet Isaiah about Jesus dying in our place, about how he's gonna take upon himself all of the sickness and all of the punishment that results from sin. We learned about this verse last week. Like this is about the death of Jesus. So why put it here where Jesus doesn't seem to do what it's talking about? Well, I think it's a clue. And I think it's a clear one if you look closely enough. The point is that what Jesus is doing in the miracles, in the healings, freeing people from what bound them is a snapshot of what he accomplishes on the cross. And it takes us to our third piece of the solution puzzle. Jesus rescues us from sin. It's the death of Jesus that puts you back again. This is what restores you because in this, he saves you from the judgment that is due you. Now that's not all that's happening on the cross, but if you miss this, you miss the cross. Remember, back in the Exodus, God's judgment is coming on a world that is flooded with idolatry and sin. But God himself provided a way out, not for those who were perfect, but for those who waved the white flag of faith. Or more literally, God provided rescue for those who covered the entryway to their homes with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now, how you decorate the entryway to your homes is your business. I do not care but I wanna ask about the entryway to your heart. And if you're betting on yourself on this one, listen, I get it, I bet on myself often too, but not here. Here I need a covering, here I need a shield. If I think I'm gonna stand before God at judgment day and say, hey, it's good to see you. You should, uh, you, ever, you ever see my track, you see my track record, you see my spiritual portfolio? Do you know about my accomplishments morally and ministerially speaking? You should probably let me in. If I or you think that's how it's gonna go, then we should feel sorry for ourselves because it's not gonna work. Asking my goodness to save me is like expecting a spider web to stop a bowling ball from hitting the ground. It's not gonna happen. Standing before God on judgment day, not covered by the blood of Jesus, it's like throwing on some swimming trunks and parachuting into a blizzard. Or if you prefer heat, it's like dousing yourself in kerosene and sprinting into a forest fire. It's not that snow and fire are mean, it's just that they're inherently dangerous for those who are not prepared for their presence. Maybe we should just stick with Exodus imagery. You try and pull this off on your own merits, on your own power, and you look a lot like Pharaoh. He just knew he had nothing to fear until he did. Now, I don't want to end on such a sour note, so I won't. I want to remind you of the good news. Jesus reveals God's power by rescuing and restoring God's people. That is why you and I are here. And that's why every time we gather here, we take our seat at the table of Jesus and we share a meal. Here in just a moment, we're gonna do what we do every week. We did it last week, we're gonna do it next week and every week until Jesus returns. We eat this small little piece of bread and we take this little shot of juice that together point to the body and blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and proclaim that because of him, we can see that God is worthy of our worship. We can be free from the things that threaten to bind us and we are becoming who God made us to be. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this particular moment that we've been given to reflect on what you've done for and are doing in us. Help us to see our lives and your salvation as a liberation. Help us to lean in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. 
For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.